Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 55 of the Leadership Window podcast. We took a little break in the month of November from this show and from our YouTube channel to wrap up a little project we call a doctoral dissertation. And I'm so glad I've got that out of the way. And and in the coming weeks, I'll be sharing with you the results of my study, which was on nonprofit mission measurement, how nonprofits measure their performance against their stated missions. And, uh, but right now we don't worry about that. We've got a lot of guests lined up for the coming weeks and month or two. So uh, put that on hold and stay tuned. In fact, today we have just an extraordinary individual. Sophie McLean has done more in her life than I have probably seen in all of the movies that I've watched in my lifetime combined. It's, uh, it's one of those stories, one of those examples of a story that you just couldn't make up. And yet it's absolutely true. Born in Algeria, educated in Morocco and France, and a professional career in the United States and the UK. Sophie's been a helicopter pilot, a teacher, a designer, a relief worker, a war refugee, a CEO, and uh, many other things, including having served as a United Nations representative on the Commission on the Status of Women's Hunger Project. We're going to learn more about that as we move through the program. She has been shot at. She's been shipwrecked. And she's been widowed. She has lived on a farm, on a boat, on a penthouse, and even in an ashram. As a wisdom teacher, Sophie has spent decades leading transformational seminars to over 80,000 people around the world of all ethnicities, ages, religions, and social backgrounds, all engaged with the universal existential questions of who and what am I and what is my life about? You know, just kind of little shallow topics like that. In her book, which I am nearly done with, uh, her book is The Elegance of Simplicity, a wisdom teacher's epic journey to awareness. And I'm telling you, it is an epic journey and it is written so absolutely beautifully and poetic. I just, I love the line. It's one of the, one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. Joining us this morning, all the way from France, as a matter of fact, uh, please welcome Sophie McLean to the show. Thank you so much, Sophie, for taking time for us this morning. Patrick, thank you so much for having me and your introduction moves me a lot. I, I appreciate you enjoying my book very much. It's a very moving, you know, one gives the whole of my heart to that book. So thank you for appreciating it. You know, I can tell Sophie that you, that the whole of your heart was put into this. I, you know, I started reading, I thought, okay, you know, Sophie's coming on the show. I want to read her book. Let me see what it's all about. And I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked immediately. It drew me in. Um, it, you know, I guess the best way I would describe it, I'm, I'm not all that well read in terms of books that have this kind of depth. This is so deep because on the surface, it's easy to read and it's, um, you know, it's very simple. It, it is about, you know, the elegance of simplicity after all, 
But as you read through it, you realize, oh, Sophie's like digging down into my soul here with this. This is uh, this is really credible. I didn't know if I was reading uh, an autobiography, a novel, uh, a book on philosophy, a, a metaphysical book. I didn't I wasn't sure for a little bit what I was reading. And then I and then I realized it as I've gotten through it. I've just I'm, we're, you just given us the ability to kind of see your soul and see who you really are and what a wonderful way to tell your story. So I hope people will, will get the book again, <clears throat> go to Amazon or any of the major book, uh, sources, the elegance of simplicity, a wisdom teacher's epic journey to awareness. So Sophie, I want to know so much now after, <laughs> have, after you're, you know, connecting with you, let's just start with, I think I'd like to start with what you want people to know about you. You know, I went through a bio and I talked about some things, but how would you introduce yourself? I, I would um, introduce myself as a, a teacher, right? For me, the distinction teacher is so um, sacred because, mm. in fact, every single human being is a teacher. You always give what you have. Right. So mm. uh, a wisdom teacher is someone that has the awareness of what they contribute. And this uh, notion of service and contribution has always elated me. And so that's how I would uh, present myself. I come alive when I contribute. Wow. OK. And, and I think I read that in the book, too, that you you believe everyone is a, both a learner and a teacher. We, we all have mm -hmm. something to learn. We all have something to teach. And I've heard that before. What would you say is the what makes a good teacher, though? What what makes an effective teacher? How what's your approach to making sure that the people you're teaching can actually learn what you're teaching them? It's authenticity. I, I, from my experience, I cannot give away what I didn't personally experience. So if we look at the whole of life, right, or the point of incarnation or the purpose of life, if you want, right, what it is to be a human being, everybody's here to experience. It's a nonstop experience. Um, so once you experience with awareness, you are able to give it away. If you just stay and talk about things, the language of description is not powerful. You will not be able to move people. But if you share what you authentically experience and learn, then there is this kind of transmission and you allow the other person to move through spaces without having to experience what you did. Right. And that's the, the teacher. That's a teacher that will capture your attention. And, you know, I used to lead seminars of eight to 10 hours and people would not move from their chair because it's irresistible. Wow. So oh, you're making me think back to some of my school teachers and the ones that had the transformational effect, the ones that you never forget that, that drew you in. It wasn't about the math or the history or the English. It was about the connection and the care that you felt and the uh, authenticity. Um, as I look back, I can absolutely see that those teachers that have had the most effect on me were the ones who were just the most authentically themselves. And they shared that with me. That's so well said. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, Patrick, I started writing my books, right? And then I'm trained as a philosopher. So I wrote what I thought was just an extraordinary piece of writing about human being, right? So I gave it to read to 20 of my friends. And I was so proud and waiting for acknowledgement. <laughs> and they came back with long faces saying it is an you cannot understand a word of what you said. Oh. It's just really dry and cold. Uh, so sorry to tell you that, but it's unreadable. And I got it. I said, you know, I was trying to protect myself. I was talking about things mm. and that has no interest for anyone. So I throw away the, the philosophical essay. <laughs> I said, all right, without risk, you would not be alive. And I put my entire life and heart and soul and I didn't protect myself at all. And there, you know, I get on your podcast and you acknowledge the book. There is no secret. Oh, uh, that is just so rich. Uh, the The idea of protecting yourself, that's interesting because so much. I think so much of what we don't achieve in our lives is because we're we're afraid it's it's always based on some sort of a fear and in mm -hmm. this case um what you talk about is is survival and this instinct that we have to protect ourselves and so every everything we do we do from this place of what you call um what you're calling ego and and so there's this um this instinct this natural inclination to guard it and protect it and we don't want to put ourselves out there that much and so we don't ever we don't ever reach that place of who we really are i mean I, it, that's kind of what i'm picking up from you and from your teaching and from your book is am i on track <laughs> yes absolutely life happens in the risk of life right mm, and that's yeah. a paradox of life if you're looking for security and safety mm then you will have disconnection and loneliness and fear, which will reinforce the lack of safety and the lack of security. Do you see, it's, it's like a catch-22. And uh, that is the whole trap of the ego. And you, you need to actually accept once and for all that there is no safety and no security in being a human being. You will find it somewhere else in connecting to who you really are, to the spiritual. But as a human, uh -uh. no safety, no security. Once you accept that, then you can go and play. Mm. Does that translate for you? Does that translate into organizational life? So, for example, we have, you know, many of our listeners run nonprofit organizations. They're the CEO of nonprofit organization. And there is this, um, I, be, I believe I have found in our, uh, in the nonprofit sector, this, uh, great desire to, um, to be stewards. And we define steward as someone who protects the assets of the organization. And so as a result, we're, we're very cautious. We, you know, we say, well, this is money that was donated by people. We have to be very careful with it and very cautious with it. And we can't take risks to reach out and do more and make things transformational. And we, we fear I'm, I'm sort of trying to make the parallel to the, this organizational life of we're trying to seek 
the safety, the security, and the protection of the organization we steward. And I believe that holds us back from real transformational impact in the social sector. Is that a fair connection? Do you make that connection? So, Patrick, right, I, I, I don't want to be pedantic, right, but I listened yeah. to one of your podcasts about language and I was absolutely fascinated. So mm. I, can I just be a little bit of the teacher here? Please, and if please. I go too far, you just tell me. No, just please. Stop. This is why right. we have you. <laughs> so risk-taking is not in the physical realm, right? So in the, uh, you know, in the physical mm. material realm with money, with the in distance, time, and form, there is things to be responsible for, right? So when you're a steward to a company, a non-profit company, you are responsible for the donations, you are responsible for the employees, you are responsible for what you want to accomplish. That's a question for me of integrity, of management, of, um, uh, yes, I would say integrity, Okay. okay, you cannot just go and just not care. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be the leader of that company. Now, when you talk about risk-taking, I talk about the level in philosophy that we call ontological. Mm -hmm. So ontology is the art and science of being, what it is to be a human being. And, you know, in the material world, I protect myself, for example, when I cross the street or I protect myself if I go to a country that is at war, which is totally uh, normal if I want to stay alive. I'm talking ontologically as a human being, constantly giving up protecting myself, giving up giving an image that is a pretense, giving up looking like uh, you know how we are thrown in as human beings, trying to know everything, trying to look like we have it all handled, trying to sound so brilliant, right? That's where that is the most important so that you reach that space, that place of authenticity where people can actually recognize themselves. So the risk taking I'm talking about is to own your humanity as humans, we are far from perfect, right? Uh, to own your humanity, to accept it and use it to transcend mm. the space of survival. So I hear that and I, I don't, so it sounds like I might be oversimplifying the concept. I guess what I'm wondering is, can't, can't that carry over though? Like uh, how you're approaching your life, mm -hmm. doesn't that carry over into who you are as a leader and how you apply, you know, you, you know, a leader of an organization. So many people are counting on that leader for, um, possibility and vision. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that our, how we approach things personally and how, how connected we are to our authentic selves personally has an impact as we lead an organization as well. Does that, does that make absolutely. a little more sense? Totally. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah, it does. Sorry if I misunderstood you. Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely does. Right. So I read somewhere a definition of a leader and I cannot remember where I read it. So I'm so sorry, whoever said it, uh, I'm giving you credit without knowing who you are, but so I heard somebody say the leader is someone that embodies the aspiration and the dreams of others. 
So someone that embodies the aspiration and the dream of others, I just absolutely adore the generosity of a leader then, mm. right? Somebody mm -hmm. that is willing to bring up the best in themselves to serve the people they lead, that is willing to apply their gift and their vision so that they can um, embody the aspiration, the dream of others, right? So to be able to do that, Patrick, you do need a level of education in what it is to be a human being and knowing yourself that will allow you to hear, listen, communicate with other human beings that you want to lead. So, Sophie, we, one of the assessments that we do, so in my work as an executive coach, one of the things that I'm mm. trying to do is help leaders become more self-aware, not, mm. not to the degree I think that you're talking about, not into that deep soul searching, but at least, at least on the surface where I'm aware of my behaviors, I'm aware of how people might be perceiving me. I'm aware that I might be projecting on others something, you know, in me. And so one of the things we do is we do a series of psychometric assessments. You've seen these and you're familiar with them from personality assessments to leadership styles, values, motivations, those kinds of things. One of the ones that we do is um, an assessment on emotional intelligence and the framework from Daniel Goleman um, where the there's four quadrants. There's how aware I am of myself and my emotions and how aware I am of others, emotions and self. And then the bottom two quadrants are, what do I do with that awareness? My mastery of what I know. And I think, you know, as you're talking, I've realized that m most of the leaders that we do those, that assessment on, their rating in the self-awareness quadrant is lower than all of the other ones. They're, they're, wow. they're good at, you know, managing their teams and feeling their teams and knowing, you know, Hey, a team member came in today and I can tell something's off, right? Something's not quite right. Or I can tell that something is frustrating or this person is fearing something, but I'm not aware of my, my own, um, responses, uh, to things. Does that surprise you that the self-awareness component of our interaction with people is usually the lowest? No, it doesn't surprise me because I encountered the same. But what surprises me is that people do not realize that you can only give what you have. You, you cannot give what you don't have. So if you don't have self-awareness, how can you empower the people you lead? Mm. It, will be on, it, it will not be effective. And, and my argument for it is look at the world. We've been trying to fix and change the world since the beginning of time. I did my thesis on Homer, the Iliad mm. and Odyssey. Mm -hmm. right? That's eight centuries before Christ. I promise you, human beings have not evolved at all <laughs> since then. So it's like what Einstein says, right? You cannot solve our problem with the same thinking we use to create them. It is time for a shift in what it is to be human. And that is self-awareness. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to ask you probably <laughs> maybe an impossible question. I, I don't know. Go ahead. Um, I don't, Go ahead. I don't think anything's impossible with you actually, but I, um, you spend, you just mentioned eight hour seminars, you write books, you, you go through, mm. you probably have, you know, coaching clients or whatever. Um, it takes time 
to figure this out. I mean, you're, you wrote about a journey that got you to this place. How would you sum it up? Like if you had to say, well, here's the, here's the basic principle of what it takes to become truly self-aware, you know, we won't understand the principles and how to get there, but can you tell us what are the main principles of becoming more self-aware? Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you very simply what I say to everybody that asks me. It's just make, just make sure that you make awareness a habit in your life, right? So what mm. is awareness? Awareness is what we do when you teach your children to cross the street, right? You just tell a child, say, no, no, you have to stop and you have to look right and you have to look left. And then and only then you make a choice about crossing the street or not. Every single parent has taught their children that. Mm-hmm. All right. Now you just need to apply it to yourself a few times during the day. <laughs> Stop. Look right. Look left. It doesn't have to take more than a few minutes. And mm. train your brain to create awareness as a habit. You see the key the secret is to shift from being on automatic mode to a self-aware mode. That's it. I mean, it's. I know it sounds so complicated, but that's why I called my book The Elegance of Simplicity. It's actually very simple. Just stop. So it's <laughs> <laughs> just stop. It. So so Sophie, you you say yeah. that it's simple, and you just you just mm. did simplify the complex. Is mm. it is it in your opinion also easy? No, okay. I don't know. Yeah, simple is not easy, right? If the spiritual world, it's what I call the spiritual road, right? The awareness road, is, mm-hmm. I call it the spiritual road. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? But the problem is, and again, I listened to some of your podcasts, and Patrick, I know you said it, but you know how people go for desperation and bad news and horrible thing and um it seems to have this attraction towards the darker side of what doesn't work okay Mm -hmm. that's because our survival mechanism needs to feed on problems on on horrors on tragedies on violence otherwise what is there to survive there is nothing to survive you don't need to survive a butterfly you can just be present and happy. But if I put a rhinoceros in front of you, oh, then you will survive. Now we have right? a problem, right? Yeah. So most, I mean, the world as a global entity, right, the human being species is surviving a danger. Therefore, that's why the media and the newspapers and mm-hmm. everything is all geared towards desperation. Mm-hmm. So when you stop and master awareness, you will shift naturally, but not easily, towards inspiration. So, but you'll have to give up that addiction to survive. And the truth is, Patrick, we are bloody good at surviving. We've mm-hmm. been doing that since a very, very, very young age. Most human beings are masterful at surviving. So when you tell them, okay, I have another game. It's called inspiration. Will you just 
give up being a master and become a beginner. And people will say, are you out of your mind? I am not going to give up what I have spent most of my life mastering, which is surviving. And that's the difficulty. That's why it's not easy, is that you need to give up that protection, that uh, glee at mastering surviving. That's why it's not easy. We, um, in the, in the nonprofit sector, we absolutely have a language of scarcity and not just, and not just the problems that, oh, there's homelessness and there's hunger and there's domestic violence and there's malnutrition and all these things. But even just within our organizations, this sense of, I got to protect this, you know, we can't, we can't, um, we can't invest in a new building because what if we don't get the money back? We can't, um, we can't go into this new technology that might serve even more people in ways that we could never serve them before. But what if it doesn't work? You know, what will happen to our grant? What will happen to our funding? What will happen to this and that? And so we're always in this, um, in this protection mode. And one of the things that we talk about, you know, there's a parable in the Bible about the talents and the, the master gives three people, uh, a, a degree of, of talents or currency and, um, and asks them to be stewards of those talents. And two of them come back and say, I turned, I turned five talents into 10 talents, or I turned this many talents into that many talents and they get awarded. But the one who comes back and says, I buried the talent because I wanted to protect it. I wanted to make sure that when you got back, it was preserved for you. And so here it is, that person got rebuked because there was only this sense of protection and not the sense of what's possible. If you actually take that talent and share it without fear of, of, you know, losing it, uh, share it with the world in a way that it grows. And I think that is one of the things that I, I have, I see a challenge in the sector of people who, who want to be stewards, but, but they don't understand that stewardship is more than protection. Yeah, it is. That's why I love working for the Hunger Project, right? So they they understand, right? In the nonprofit, my I don't have an enormous experience of nonprofit, uh, Patrick. Uh, so just stop me if I say something uh, stupid. But with my two years about the a bit more uh, with the United Nations and especially with the Hunger Hunger Project. I notice that there are some organizations that are wanting to help. So it's aid-driven charity, and and it's top-down, right? And it's it that model has been around for an enormous amount of years, and it just does not work. Because if it was working, we would have by now solved you know, poverty and everything we need to alter. So this organization just inspired me so much because they are going after a model where they educate everybody they work with, um, the hungry people, the patriarchal uh, system in the village. They are... Uh, 
empowering women um, as the answer to the hunger uh, problem. So they are educating into everybody into what is possible as a human being, through equality, through self-reliance and dignity. And they literally are educating people. And that is my big passion, is that the world we are living in does not work. It just doesn't work. We actually have violence and cruelty. There is also, I mean, I'm not, you know, the dark, pessimistic kind of woman. I, I'm surrounded by love. I, I see it everywhere. I fundamentally believe that all human beings are good. There is only good people doing bad things, but there is no bad people. I have never met one, but I've met people that have done the most horrible things. But I was never, ever educated into what it is to be a human being, ever. You know, I, as you said, I, I mm. was a helicopter pilot. I learned about the design principle of a helicopter. Otherwise, I could not fly. Now, we are human beings for the entire life, and nobody educates us on the very design of what it is to be human. And, you know, we're all different. Like all the planes are different, but they all have a principle in common. They all fly. Well, human beings have principle in common. And if you educate people on those principles, they can actually become leaders in their life and leaders of others and and thrive and elevate. Mm, man, that's so true. There's no, you know, there's no class in school about you know what nope. what it what it means to nope. I guess we just take for granted we just think we're supposed to just learn that by being human like being human teaches us how to be human yeah quite right yeah. I mean do, Patrick do you remember somebody at school ever asking you what you thought about what they were teaching you I don't remember one teacher asking me what is actually your view about what I've just said I was never asked for my point of view. I don't know if it's different in the U.S., but in France, definitely not. I, I think I think I, I would have to say yes. I was. Um, okay. It wasn't. It, but it was the exception, not the rule. Mm. I mean, again, mm. it was the. It was the. I can. I can visualize the teachers who did that, and some mm. of them were. Mm. Some of them were by nature of the courses that I took. So, for example, in college, I took a course on ethics. Well, ethics yes. is about, you know, it's uh, yeah. very subjective and it's like, Hey, what would you do in this situation? How yeah. would you, but, <clears throat> but by then I'm in college. I mean, why don't we yeah. do that when we're, you know, they say that, you know, 90% of our brains are developed by the age of five. How are we teaching? How are we teaching that up to that point? How could we get creative and help young children understand a little bit more about <laughs> who they, I don't know if you could do that, but. Mm -hmm. But uh, well, yeah. no, we can. <clears throat> we have two different mind, right? Mm. We we the the human mind is absolutely extraordinary. There is one mind that is called the conscious mind that got us to the moon, E equal MC square, and <laughs> have all the progress we've made. That is just miraculous. It's connected mm. to the mystery of the universe, and it has intuition and gives us Einstein and all of those, mm -hmm. right? And then there is an automatic mind that is a survival one that is all geared towards protection, domination, and survival. So if we taught our children 
to think consciously versus browbeating them into automatic behavior like everybody else, we would have a different world. Hmm. Boy, and we would. Um, I want to get to a few of the concepts in the book. And uh, I love, again, one of the things I love about the book is that you include a glossary at the end, which is really helpful because for people who aren't in the world of philosophy or, you know, some of the um, concepts that you talk about, we read terms and they kind of gloss over. We're like, hmm, I'm not sure what that means, but I'll keep reading. Maybe I'll figure it out. Uh, it was helpful to have that um, that glossary at the end. And one of the things um, that you define, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but you define um, uh, ego. And um, the ego, you say, is the sum of all of our identifications. You say, okay, well, what are, what are identifications? Say, well, those are the things we associate ourselves with. We feel like we're connected mm -hmm. in some way and we have some relationship with them. So the ego is the sum of all those things. And one of the concepts that you teach is the concept of disentangling our ego. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what that even means and why we, why would we want to do, what does that do? What, tell us a little bit about that concept. <laughs> All right. So, um, um, Patrick, the, so we, let's go back to the beginning of life, right? When you see a little baby in a cart, mm. You don't look at them saying, oh, a little perfectionist. Oh, a nice one. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a bad-tempered one. No, little baby is just there, right? It's being. It's, uh, you, in fact, you look, that's why we love little babies so much. It's just like they're just present. There is nothing going on. It's like marvelous, right? Yeah. They are the cry or laugh or sleep, but they... They don't make up stories. And then very quickly, right, very quickly, something happens around the age of one or two, Patrick, that early in life. And there comes, starts the protection, mm. right? So we, and, you know, as you said, I've, I've had a lot of students from China to Canada to Europe to South Africa, all over the place, whatever the nationality, it's always the same design. The ego has a specific design, right? It's with specific age and specific um, uh, flavor, depending on the age. But you start at a very young age, and then you build what I call the cage. The ego is like a protection, a virtual protection, right? So little by little, by the age you're 18, you're done. You're in the cage. Right? So imagine from the age of one or two to the age of 18, you've put yourself in a protection, but it's that protection is a cage. So yes, you protected, but you imprisoned. Mm. Right? Does that mm. make sense? So yeah, far? absolutely. All right. So then you wonder why you're lonely and why you're not having fun and where is your passion gone and how come you were so happy when you were four years old and you could play Superman for hours and now... You know, life is heavy and you're thinking about going to sleep at 10 a.m. in the morning because <laughs> you don't want to be alive for the rest of the day. All right. Well, it's because you're in a cage. By and, definition, and you, and this, being in a cage is not fun. And this cage is a set of beliefs it's that we've formed? It's a set of decisions. Decisions. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's decisions you've made, narrative you took on. Let me just give you an example if you want. I was six year old. I have a delightful mother, which is uh, 
very loving. She takes me in her arm and she hugs me and she says, my darling, my darling, my darling, I love you so much. When I think when you were born, I wanted a boy. Well, forget about I love you so much. Forget about all the hugs and stuff. All I heard was what? She wanted a boy? And I was very clear at six. I wasn't a boy. Now, can you see as a six-year-old, my mother is about the most important person in the world. I'm devastated because I make it mean that she doesn't want me. And, And now I have the rest of my life where I am someone that is not wanted because I don't stop, you know, the, the, and consciousness, the automaticness of those decisions is that at six, I don't stop saying that is just something my mother said that doesn't apply and doesn't make it, doesn't mean what I'm making it mean. I am now putting the whole of life and the whole of humankind in my decision. No one wants me because I'm not a boy. So, so what was the rest of my life about? Proving that I was as good as a boy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the helicopter pilot, I crossed the South Pacific, I got shipwrecked on Easter Island, I parachuted free fall, I jump off cliff, I'm a water skier champion, a horse rider champion. You know, it sounds good, doesn't it? Meanwhile, it was a six-year-old trying to prove to everybody that I could do things as well as a boy. And when I realized that I was 33, and, you know, I was invited to dinner party because my life was such an adventure and people thought it was so exotic. And there I am at 33 when I realized, forget about what it looks like. The truth is I am surviving something my mother said when I was six years old. And if I go on that way, I'll probably kill myself very soon because where am I going to stop proving that I can do anything physically as well as a man. And also, Patricka, you know, you know that women that are trying to compete with men, how tiring that is? Okay, I was one of those. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was not good news. So you call so, it a decision, yeah. though, rather than yeah, a, rather a than a belief. So my question for you yeah. is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around a six-year-old mm. deciding that. Like, did, mm-hmm. did the six-year-old have a choice at that point to say, oh, that's nope. not what she meant. You know, I understand nope. what she meant. So, so how is it a decision then if, if there's really not a choice? Like, that's sort of put on you and then it becomes a belief. Are you saying the decisions come later? No, no, I'm not talking about choice. I'm talking about decisions, right? So choice mm-hmm. is when you have awareness. So a choice is taken in full consciousness, is based on nothing, no external reasons or justifications. So a choice is the most powerful gift we have as human beings. A decision is very, very different. Oh, that's and we a go great back to distinction. language. That's a yeah, great distinction. A decision is when your selection is based on an external phenomenon. Got it. And then you are the victim. Got then it. you are the victim of the external world. So it's that second mind that made the decision. It, that survival it, mind it, made the yes. decision. 
Exactly. And that's what unconsciousness is, Patrick. And unconsciousness is like being a sleepwalker. It's because you're always conscious. But if you're conscious with without awareness, mm. right? Right. That's when you take the decision. And if you're conscious with awareness, then you can make a choice. Then you have a choice. That's oh. why awareness is the ultimate power. See, I thought I was going to get on this call today and walk away totally confused, but I'm not. You you actually really are doing some wonderful teaching right now. Oh, this is so good. So let's get back to disentangling our ego. So yeah, let's yeah. maybe maybe let's stay with the six year old, okay? And yeah. that and that story and that illustration, since we we kind of yeah. have that now. So how yeah. does that become a part of the ego? And how does how you know is it within that? Um, age, age two to age 18, is that where we, we can disentangle it? Can we disentangle it after we're locked in prison? How do we disentangle it? Yeah. yeah. I I was 33 when I saw this one, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so you, let's say there is, and it's, it's really not that complicated, Patrick, the design of the ego, there is four main decisions like that, like the one I just shared. There is only four. It's not that bad. Like there is four wolves to a cage, right? Okay. And it's in my book. You can follow the chapters mm-hmm. of my book and do it for you, right? And then there is another side of the ego, which is a destructive one, right? Because the one I just shared is the one that really made me survive because I became so strong, right? I became as strong as a man, what I thought was as strong as a boy. So it made me win in life. You know, I I am known as a strong one in my family. I take care of everybody. When my husband died, I didn't go down. I just took care of his company, took over everything, his four children, the whole thing, right? Now, you know, by the time I was 33, I was exhausted, right? I mean, truly, I was just like, oh, good God, right? Uh, just give me a break. I wish I could just stay in bed and sleep for five weeks. So I did the work of disentangling. And what does it mean to disentangle? Is that you go back through your life with a teacher that can show you where to look. And you literally deconstruct the wall of your cage. Now, here's the good news. The good news is you can keep what works. You know, there are sometimes, like my father passed away six months ago. It was really useful for me to be strong for my mother. It was really useful. I took care care of her and she's in her 80s. And, you know, I can use being strong. What I got rid of is the feeling of not being wanted. That's the one that causes me suffering, right? So that's the disentanglement is like you literally have constructed your cage. Okay, now just examine how you constructed it. Take and deconstruct your cage and build yourself as a mature human being, build yourself what I call a conscious ego. Because we do need an ego to operate in this world. There is nothing wrong with the ego, except if you're going to be a monk or a nun or a mystic on the hill of the Himalayas, you do need an ego. Like, for example, I'm a wisdom teacher, right? I have constructed that ego. I wasn't born a wisdom teacher. Mm -hmm. I present myself that way. 
But what a difference between a conscious ego and an automatic ego. You know, the world doesn't work because it's run by two years old, upset two years old, upset six years old. That's, that is the education that is needed. And frankly, Patrick, my course is 14 classes. In 14 classes, one, four, you disentangle your ego. I mean, how simple can it be? Wow. Well, mm. it's, it's, um, you're, you're making me a believer that it's more simple than I, I thought in the beginning for sure. Um, mm. but, but I do, I love, and one of the things that you say in the book is something to the effect of, you know, a child, for example, who is abandoned, um, concludes, makes the decision at that, that, mm. that life is a place where she is abandoned by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was we, the, the way you said that in the book was so like, uh, you know, I've heard, we've heard this stuff before and we know that, you know, our, our childhoods, and this is why we have therapy and, and these kinds of things. We go back in the past and we figure out why we, why we are the way we are and do the things we do. But the way you put it was that a, a child who was abandoned once, um, concludes or can conclude, um, that life is a place. You, you said it was a place mm-hmm. where. I'm abandoned by people. So we put, we project that on everything. Every, everybody's out to abandon me. That's right. And, and not everyone uh, obviously will decide the same thing, right? Right. But there is a very specific age. That age is the age where we give a meaning to life and each of us have their own meanings. Mm. But really, Patrick, you and I know that the mystery and the immensity of life is beyond what we can make it mean. But Mm. we live as though we know the meaning of life. And that is absurd. Mm. Because truly, liberation and freedom comes when you know you know nothing, and that is from Socrates, not me. That's right. That's <laughs> this right. This one I know. <laughs> That's right. It is liberating. It is very liberating. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, a couple more things. I'm trying to be sensitive of of time here because I know you've got other things uh, that you've got to get to. But I want to. Uh, I'd like for you to say more about the distinction that you make in the book between suffering and sorrow and pain. And, uh, this was, this was a good, um, distinction for me when I read it is I, boy, you know, I connected the two, but you made them very different in the book. Sorrow and pain is different or suffering is different from sorrow and pain. Can you say more about that? Cause I think we, I think we as leaders carry a lot of suffering around Mm -hmm. as we Mm -hmm. lead and it affects, it affects how we perform and how effective that we, that we are. Say more about that. Suffering. Well, suffering is uniquely human. That's the first thing, Patrick, right? If you if you see a dog that just lost a leg, right, and you see them running as fast as they can on three legs, you've never heard a dog saying, oh, my life is ruined, get me a therapist, right? Or the earth doesn't suffer from the oh, earthquake. Wow. Wow. Uh, the only one that suffers a human being, but that is the power of language, right? The language has a shadow side. Language without awareness will lead to suffering. Why? Because if you go back to the story I told you when I was six years old, I made up a story, right? I made up a story that my mother didn't want me because I didn't, I wasn't a boy. Mm-hmm. Then I believed my story. And, but it wasn't true. My mother didn't mean she didn't want me. She said, oh, how 
silly I was that I so yeah. wanted a boy when I love you so much, right? Yeah. So the moment you believe your narrative, the moment you make up a story and you believe it, then you will suffer. Ooh. And you will suffer until you find a way you, to, yep. to, to you disentangle that. Saying, oh, oh, yeah, that's not the truth. It's not the truth. I'm believing in an illusion, right? Now, pain, you know, pain and sorrow, that's a lot of a human being. Uh, you know, pain is physical pain, right? Or heartbreak, you know, like my father died six months ago. Mm. I, I miss him. I would hate not to miss him. I mean, I, I'm happy. Somehow it's okay that life is a little bit empty because my dad is not here anymore. Even if I have a powerful connection with him wherever he is, I miss him physically. That's pain. That's sorrow. I'm okay with it. Grief, it's fine. But I'm not making up any stories about it. Therefore, I don't suffer. Mm. from his death. Wow. There is no stories like I should have done more or maybe he didn't love me or I wasn't nice enough or do you know all the stories we use to increase our suffering because we can't just be with a loss? Mm. Okay. If you don't make up stories or if you make up stories but you do not believe them, you will not suffer. Suffering is optional. Mm. Pain, on the other hand, that's a lot of being human. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all going to have that. So <clears throat> mm. suffering then is a choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you can only reach the choice with awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it, everything, it all, it all circles back to that simple framework. It does. That's good. It does. Sophie, yeah. um, so I've got just a few more wrap up questions for you. And one, mm -hmm. one thing that I didn't have, um, here on my little sheet to ask you, mm -hmm. what are you still learning and grappling with? Oh, uh, let's see. I, um, I, am. um, I had to let go of being a student a little bit because I love learning so much. Right. So <laughs> I'm grappling with <laughs> accepting to be a teacher. Um, um, I had to resolve myself, that's the past three or four years, uh, of being the teacher, the one that lead um, nearly constantly, mm. right? So that, you know, being the one and the one that you have to deal with your little voice in your head saying, who do you think you are? to call yourself a wisdom teacher you know that one like who do you think you are yeah Impos so imposter syndrome yeah 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 but 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 i so i i i did it i think i did it so that was my latest big uh, uh, maturing if you want to say yeah. okay i'm going to take that risk i quite like to be behind the scene but you see, I'm on your podcast now. I'm going to speak up. And you, you are. Oh, you're doing some wonderful <laughs> and, teaching. Yeah. So you've yeah. made me curious, though, if I if yeah. I may. Um, mm. Why why does it have to be either or? Why why is it um, I have to leave being a student in order to be a teacher? Can you not? No, do both? no. It's because I was hiding behind being a student. I see. You see, yes. That you was see, a protection. Is, yeah. If you don't bring awareness. It can look really good. Like I spent eight years 
educating myself in spirituality, right? I went to the Amazon forest and I studied with shaman and I, I went see. to India and I did all that. And then, you know, oh, you feel comfortable. Mm. Oh, it's deliciously fascinating. And you have all those mystical experience. And suddenly mm. I woke up saying, oh, I am losing the equilibrium. And the moment you don't bring awareness, you will see that you're using it as your next protection. So no, I I didn't. I never stopped being a student. I see. But now I do. I do both. I see. Yeah. The the being a student part was you had to you had to get to a place where you felt worthy to teach. Does that does that sound right? So, uh, I had to let go of my fear. Now I've been teaching for thirty years, but I had mm. to let go of my fear of going by myself, not in an organization, not in a group, but mm. by myself saying, I have something to say. Yeah. Please read my book and yeah. come and do my course. That was very risky for me. Mm. Me too. I, I can relate to that. I can <laughs> yeah. relate to that. That's, yeah. that's very true. Yeah. And you still, and I still feel it, you know, from time to time it creeps up. Mm. I will say mm. I have become more aware of that. I have learned that, um, you know, for the first, you know, year or two of, of being full-time in this work, I, I would fear what if, what if I can't get the business I need, you know, what do, am I going to have to go back? You know, will I lose my house? Will I, and, mm -hmm. and, um, I found that just by continuing to give what I have, it, mm -hmm. it circles around, it's, it's, um, this mindset of scarcity had to, had to leave me. I had to just say, no, this is, if I'm, yeah. if I'm following purpose, <laughs> then it's going to yeah. work out. And so I've learned see, now when yeah. there are little bumps, I go, ah, now this is, I know what this is. Keep moving. That's the choice we're talking about, right? Yeah, with yeah. awareness, there is nothing to do with that fear. There is nothing to do with the worries. The moment you look at it, with awareness, you can make a choice. Mm. Say, uh, you know what? I'm not going to go there. I'm going to have faith. And just, mm. just as I operate with integrity, I trust that it will all work out. This is so good. Mm. I have a couple more questions for you. And these are questions that I ask. I like to ask all my guests because I'm always curious mm. and I always get good inspiration from this. Who, um, Sophie, who, who do you look back to as a key leader and just thinking through the lens of leadership, a key leader or two in your life or career at any point in time that you would say have had the most impact on you and why? All right, so I have a, I have somebody I love so much. Um, I, I'm like a groupie of Gandhi. Mm. I I adore Gandhi. Mm. I revere him. I I I just want to be just like him. You know, when I started leading, I was 33. I'm 60 year old now, but I I I uh, used to go in front of the room, and I was so frightened. And I used to say, "Okay, I'm just going to be Gandhi." I'm just going to say what he would have said, right? And I adore his humbleness, his love, his care. Oh, I'm getting moved just thinking about his his total service, his courage, his determination, but not force at all. It's just like, okay, I will stop eating if you keep fighting, but don't mind me. You know, I, there was no force whatsoever. And he, for me, incarnates power. You know, there is an enormous distinction between power and force. Mm -hmm. 
he had no authority whatsoever. He always refused um, a, a government job, but head of state were, were bowing to him. Why? Because he was so aligned with himself, so true to himself. So no. I think that is, um, you know, someone I respect, admire, and uh, I'm just uh, grateful that he was alive. I'm not surprised yeah. by that one because you, what you just described was authenticity. And that was the word you used at the beginning of this conversation as to, mm. to what this is all about. So I, I love that. Mm. But, um, mm. And, and let me ask you uh, our, our final question. Mm. Um, and before I do that, Sophie, I, I cannot thank you enough for reaching out to me and for coming on this program because this has been this has been good for me i know it's good for our listeners this is why i put the show out there i want i want to bring value to the world um, of anyone who's listening if it's 10 people or if it's a thousand but you've brought value to me and uh, you've absolutely uh, taught me uh things here in in both your book and and your um your presence with me here today. I, I truly want to thank you for that. I think I'm going to get a lot of great feedback and comments from our listeners on this program. I also want to tell folks um, to visit sophiemclean.com. That's S-O-P-H-I-E, Sophie, McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N, sophiemclean.com. We will put a link to it on our podcast episode page for you. Also, don't forget the book. You just need to read this book. It doesn't take long to read. It's not a huge, big, academic, high, you know, uh, some philosophical speak that you won't understand. Trust me, it is. Um, I love what you said, Sophie, about how that evolved, you know, after talking to your friends about the book. But the book is The Elegance of Simplicity, A Wisdom Teacher's Epic Journey to Awareness. I hope I hope our readers will put a link to the book there as well. So I do want to thank you for coming on the show as I ask you my final question. And that is what is Sophie's number one tenet of leadership? If you had the, you know, the, the 22nd or 32nd version of this is the one thing above all others that I would tell leaders uh, to think about and be aware of, what would that be? <laughs> Patrick, I would beg, I would beg all the leaders to go and educate themselves in what it is to be a human being. Mm. I, I literally, that, that, that will by itself transform the world. If you have the courage, the generosity, the impulse, and, and the integrity to step into leadership, and the world is crying out for leaders, right? please just know that your responsibility is to actually understand the very design of what it is to be human so you can empower mm. other people. Wow. Simply put, mm. simply put. Yeah. Elegant. <laughs> Sophie, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Patrick, I, I, I really want to acknowledge you. Um, you know, there are some people you speak to and you feel, feel like you're the most interesting and profound person in the entire world and that comes from the way the person listens to you and you have empowered me your generosity is moving and i've had the most marvelous time with you so i thank you very much for the difference you make with your podcast thank, thank you. you for having me thank you my absolutely my honor all right folks that's why we do this show i hope you'll stay tuned in lead on 